Welcome to the AT Parenting Survival Podcast, where you get help and guidance through the chaos of parenting a child with anxiety or OCD. This show is for educational purposes and is not intended to replace the guidance of a qualified professional. Here's your host, child therapist, Natasha Daniels. Well, hello there, and welcome to another episode of the AT Parenting Survival Podcast. Today, I want to talk to you about the struggles and the nuances of raising a child with a chronic health issue or health issues, as well as anxiety or OCD, because they don't stay in their lane, they don't stay in a box, and they they interact with each other in ways that can be a little bit more challenging than just having one or the other. So before we get started, I do have a couple of announcements. I want to thank NoCD for sponsoring this episode. NoCD offers affordable, effective, convenient therapy. They are available in the U.S. and outside of the U.S., and you can schedule your free 15-minute consultation to see if NoCD is the right fit for you and your child. Just go to treatmyocd.com. That's treatmyocd.com. I'll leave a link in the show notes. I also want to let you know that my self-care series is a free series that I do twice a year, and it's back by popular demand. Both my series are, are very popular because it's a lot of free, good guidance and information. And the new series that well, it's not new, but my self-care series is starting in a few weeks. And if you want to sign up, you can just go to atparentingsurvivalseries.com. Love to walk you through self-care in relationship to raising a child with anxiety or OCD. So we talk a lot about our mindset and how we interact with the anxiety or OCD stuff from our childhood that interacts with anxiety or OCD, our support system related to anxiety or OCD. So a lot of good stuff that is very specific for your situation and not just self-care in general. So join me at atparentingsurvivalseries.com. I'd love to see you over there. If you've taken it before, we have a lot of repeat takers <laughs> because luckily it's it's that powerful that people like to take my series multiple times. So definitely join if you've been there before. It's always a great refresher. And every series is different because I always have a temporary Facebook group that we pop up just for that series, just for that particular series. And so new people, new discussions, and I go live in there all week. Actually, it's about two weeks that I go live in there going more in depth on the videos that you will see. So uh, the videos that you watch in the series are on demand. So you watch them at any time during the series. You can watch them in in your pajamas at night. You don't have to wait for them to, you don't have to be anywhere at a specific time. And so that makes it really convenient. So I hope to see you over there. All right, let's dive into this topic today. Ironically, this topic came from my oldest daughter, my 19 year old. And I don't know. I mean, I don't know why she said this. It was just a really great topic. She goes, you should talk about chronic health issues and anxiety and OCD. I'm like, yeah, that's so good. And part of it is because My kids do have medical issues as well as anxiety or OCD, and she does as well. And so I think she sees the interplay and how we have to kind of dance in both of those arenas. But it was such a good topic, and I'm so glad she she told me about it. So let's just first identify what we're talking about when we're talking about chronic health issues. The common ones, the ones that I see the most, at least in my life and in you know people in the AT parenting community, my membership community. Are these are some of the most common ones? Stomach issues like celiac or IBS 
or allergies around foods, particular foods, or an allergy around something else that can be life-threatening like bees. So you got your peanuts and you've got fish allergies and, you know, food allergies that could be life-threatening as well as environmental allergies that can be really scary. So if you're carrying around an EpiPen, that's what I'm talking about. Also, we've got pandas and pans. We can't forget to mention them when we're talking about chronic health issues with anxiety and OCD. Pandas and pans is first and foremost in my head. And we'll go a little bit into that as well. IBS, irritable bowel syndrome, loves to hang out with anxiety. And so we'll talk about that. And POTS, which stands for postural orthostatic tachycardia uh, syndrome. So that's POTS is another thing to touch on because there is a, a very strong relationship between POTS and panic disorder. So we'll go into that as well. So let's dive into, I've got this kind of separated out into categories. I want to talk about the overlap between medical and mental health. I do believe, just as a caveat, I do believe that mental health is a medical issue. (laughs) I think that we're just still in the stone ages when it comes to finding the origins of what is driving mental health. We know that it can have to do with the neurotransmitters. We know that with OCD, it has to do with basal ganglia. Inflammation makes OCD worse. We also know that the amygdala can be overreactive and overresponsive in anxiety. So we know that the brain plays a critical part. And you know, new research is showing that the stomach has a critical, critical part in anxiety and serotonin levels. So mental health is medical health. That's just a little side note because I don't even like really separating them out because I feel like that's part of the mental health struggle for those of us that are dealing with mental health issues or raising kids with mental health is that it's almost like there's a stigma because it, it seems like we should have more control over that. It's like the invisible medical issue. But the reality is they are seen differently at this point, and we are not able to pinpoint the medical origins conclusively. It's all kind of guesstimating. So for the sake of this podcast episode, we're just going to separate them, but I just want you to know where I stand on that. And so sometimes it can get hard when we're looking at what is health. And when I say health, we're talking about the chronic health issues I just described or any other that your child is dealing with. I actually added asthma to that because I feel like asthma can also be a struggle when we're, you know, afraid, you know, stress can play a role in asthma. So I included that, but there are plenty of other chronic health conditions I didn't mention. There's fibromyalgia, there's chronic fatigue, you know, there's a lot of other things. Also, your child can have diabetes, lots of health issues. So by no means is my list all encompassing. But when we are dealing with anxiety or OCD, sometimes it's hard to say, which one is it? Or is it both? Is it IBS or is it stress? Is it POTS or is it panic? Is it OCD or is it just, you know, normal reactions to having a really life-threatening allergy? Is it pandas and pans? Um, Now, pandas and pans get smushy because part of pandas and pans is anxiety and OCD. And so that one gets a little bit more squishy. (laughs) You like my clinical terms? Yeah, that one's squishy. So let's talk about how this can show up. You can have anticipatory anxiety, but you also have celiac disease or IBS. So I'll talk about how that works in my house. When my daughter was little, her stomach always hurt, perpetually hurt. And she developed anticipatory anxiety about her stomach hurting. And so that can happen when you just purely have anxiety. A lot of times our kids' stomachs hurt because they're anxious. So when you're anxious, all sorts of chemicals start to go through your body. you got your cortisol and adrenaline and epinephrine. Everything's happening. 
because it's it's preparing you to fight or or, or flee. And it does a lot of stuff physiologically to your body when your body is having a false alarm because it thinks it's a real alarm and it slows down digestion. It releases all those chemicals. So it's doing a lot of physical things, which in turn can make you feel nauseous because it's a flood of chemicals and your digestion is slowing down because it needs to allocate your energy to other areas other than digestion. And so it can make you feel nauseous. It can make you feel sick to your stomach. So there is a reason why feeling sick to your stomach is related to anxiety. There's a very physical reason why that's happening. However, when you're anxious, that in and of itself becomes or can become an anxiety theme. Like I'm nervous now about my stomach hurting. And so that's why emetophobia, the fear of throw up is a very, very common anxiety theme because often the side effect of anxiety becomes the anxiety itself. And so that becomes tricky. So you have a a child who has a stomach ache all of the time. Now, when you add in celiac disease or IBS or any other medical issue that makes you nauseous, or even, and this is not about health, but even medications for anxiety can sit and make your stomach a little sour, um, depending on which one it is, that adds even more anxiety and stress. And so my daughter, I thought it was anxiety. I thought it was 100% anxiety-based. She had stomach aches from a very little age. And all my kids have a very weak stomach. I have a very weak stomach. And so it wasn't surprising to me. You know, I had a history of emetophobia. I always threw up when I was anxious. My oldest daughter had an incredibly fragile stomach and had GERD, lots of stomach issues, major reflux, lots of stuff, went on medication, sensory issues. So it wasn't surprising to me that my youngest was having stomach issues. When she was, um, you know, getting kindergarten, first grade, she was starting to have some school refusal because she was afraid to throw up. It seemed to me to be very classic emetophobia, the fear of throw up. And I just wanted to do my due diligence and go to the doctor and rule out medical, which you should always do. It's a very helpful thing. And surprisingly, she was diagnosed with celiac. And a couple of years later, because we had a horrible doctor to begin with, a couple of years later, we found out that she had severe lactose intolerance as well, like major allergy to lactose, not minor, where she gets really sick when she has dairy. And so a lot of her early stomach issues were medical. And because they were medical, she developed anticipatory anxiety around having those stomach issues. So when you're when you have the predisposition to anxiety or OCD, and then you have a medical condition, anxiety and OCD doesn't just stay in its cage it glums onto it. It says, oh, another opportunity, right? Because I always talk about anxiety and OCD being opportunistic. And so it's like another opportunity. I'm going to make this an anxiety thing because this is overwhelming too. And so then when you have anticipatory anxiety around stomach issues, which can happen with an allergy, it can happen with celiac, it can happen with IBS, irritable bowel syndrome, where, you know, your stomach and your intestines just can't really handle certain foods but stress actually creates a flare where you have more IBS issues. Stress and anxiety don't create IBS, from my understanding. They exacerbate it. And so a lot of people with IBS tend to have anxiety and stress. They go together, but um, I don't believe stress and anxiety cause it, but I could be wrong. I'm not a medical doctor. But when you are worried about IBS, and I've had um, many kids in my practice come to me because their gastroenterologist recommended therapy in conjunction with their medical care, part of my role was to work on the anticipatory anxiety of the IBS 
and to develop some de-stress techniques to help them relax and to help them reduce their stress overall in their life. And so there is this, this interchange with those things. Another thing that can happen is that kids will avoid foods. And so it's asking yourself, what is kind of normal avoidance and what is above and beyond? And so when you have kids who have celiac and when you have kids who have IBS and there's certain foods they can eat and certain foods they can't eat and certain foods will hurt their stomach and they already have a history of anxiety or OCD, a lot of them, many of them, not all of them, but some of them will start to restrict their food intake. I have more control if I just don't eat. And you see people who have these medical issues without anxiety doing the same thing because, and I totally get this because I have IBS induced by a lack of a bladder, <laughs> bladder, gallbladder. I have a bladder, thank goodness. But, and so I get this, and I, but I am an anxious person. And so when they took my gallbladder out over the years, it's been 13 years now, I became less and less able to process foods that the gallbladder would help me process. And so, and I would be, you know, doubled over with cramps. I'd have to go to the bathroom. It would be an urgent, scary, lack of control kind of situation. And I started to avoid foods when I was in public. I started to avoid foods when I had appointments. I started to avoid foods when I had to speak somewhere or do something. And so if my schedule was busy, I was avoiding eating a lot. That's not healthy. And so sometimes whether we have anxiety or OCD or not, we can be avoiding foods. I have seen kids who have like a peanut allergy and they will avoid all foods. You know, they'll start to be very, very limited because they're worried there could be peanuts in anything or whatever they're allergic to. If they're allergic to, you know, bee stings, they might avoid going outside. I once worked with a girl who had a health issue where she couldn't sweat and she just didn't want to go outside at all. Now there were some realistic concerns about that because you don't want to go out in the heat and we're in Arizona and be sweating, not being able to sweat, which could turn into a medical crisis. But then to go and not go outside at all is an extreme response due to her anxiety. And so looking at how they interplay is important. Um, you can also have kids who have migraines. That's another health issue. And if there's OCD there as well, these, these health issues do not create anxiety or OCD, but they can make them worse and vice versa. And so there's this, this relationship both ways where they can, they can both make it worse. But I have had kids who have OCD and have health issues. Let's just use migraine as an example. And they will develop compulsions to prevent, quote unquote, having those health issues. And so they will, I had one kid who had, had migraines and had a fear of migraines and would associate things that he did like right before he had a migraine. And so he'd have to avoid all of those, even if they were irrational and didn't make any sense. And even if he knew that didn't make any sense. I've had kids with migraines who had magical thinking where they had to, you know, tie their shoes in a certain way or knock on their door before they left the room to prevent getting a migraine. I've had kids who've had the fear of throw up also develop these magical thinking compulsions where they have to do certain things at certain times that would guarantee that they won't throw up. I've seen that with, you know, just OCD, but also with kids who have a health issue that does make them nauseous as well as OCD. So when you get into the realm of, I have to do this in order for me not to experience this, that can be very compulsive and that can be OCD. So you can see how there's a lot of ways they start to intermingle. There are people who are so overcautious that they are really restricted in their lives because they 
they take their health issues and they develop an OCD set of rules around those things, their core fear is actually their, their health issue. And so a lot of parents will say to me, but she really does have that health issue. It's not irrational. You know, we often talk about how OCD is irrational. It's not irrational. Or, or I'll have an anxious parent who has an anxious child who has a health issue as well. And they're both really anxious about it, but she is allergic to bees. So she really shouldn't go out because it's not safe. And so we have to ask ourselves, how much are we playing into it? How much are we anxious about our kids' health issues? And how much is this, you know, objectively a concern and how much of it is our stuff and how much of it is their stuff. And it's tricky because one, parents have different views on these things. I'm trying to think, I know that I recently have done things that were, I think, over the top (laughs) because of my own health issues. I'm trying to remember what it was. It happened while we were traveling just recently. You know, it might've been, although it wasn't totally irrational trying to think you want to look at yourself I'm and I I'm doing this as I'm recording I should have probably thought about this before I'm like trying to think of I always like to throw myself under the bus to help with the learning process but I know there are times where I am being over the top when it comes to my kids issues and it's driven by my own anxiety and my own stuff so we just got back from Bali Indonesia And we had a quick stopover in Hong Kong for about a day. Beautiful. Bali is a beautiful place. Beautiful people. So kind. Such a spiritual place. So much gratitude in Bali. It was the best trip we've ever had. And my kids loved it. We just loved the culture. We really got to know the culture. We had a Balinese tour guide who really like taught us about life there. And I felt like we just really got to really explore and you know, look at temples and understand their compounds. Anyway, that's not what the story is about, but I just want to, you know, tell you how amazing Bali is, especially when you get outside of the touristy areas, you really explore. But, and Hong Kong was beautiful too, but we were only there for a very short period of time. Just, we were at the airport and we had a a layover, but was it a stayover? And that's actually a very good thing to do because you're paying for it. Like you're not paying extra as far as the ticket goes. And you're going so far when you're going to Bali or Australia, it's so far from the United States that if you can find an airline, total tangent here, but if you can find an airline that does stayovers, it's a little more bang for your buck because you get to see an extra place and you only have to pay for a hotel. So we did that in Hong Kong because Cathay Airlines does that. I think Qatar Airlines does that too with these stayovers. And so we were able to do like a five-hour tour in the morning and like rush to get a 1240 flight. It was like, it was a little touch and go, but I was like, you know what? It's worth it. It's Hong Kong. Um, and we did wind up going to a fishing village and a monastery, and we saw this large Buddha on the island um, next to the airport. But my story is about Bali. I research everything when we travel, and you know, and that I quickly learned about Bali belly, which if you haven't ever heard of that, it's just, there's just a lot of easy ways to get sick when you're coming from the United States to Bali because your stomach just isn't used to, your stomach isn't as hearty. So the water isn't safe to drink. It's really not safe to use to brush your teeth or to shower with as long as you know you don't want to get it in your mouth. And my kids have super sensitive stomachs. All of us have emetophobia, the fear of throw up for different reasons. You know, my daughter has celiac, so she her stomach often hurts anyway. And I think I was a little over the top where I was just like, wash your hands, wash your hands. You know, I had hand sanitizer with me because also like, you know, it's easy to get like norovirus. There's lots of things that you can get over there if your immune system's not up to speed. And so 
I think I, I freaked my kids out because <laughs> my son did not want to shower the whole time. I can't shower without getting it on my lips. I, I can't. And I'm like, you have to shower. We're here for a week. Anyway, my oldest daughter and my son actually did get sick. Uh, my oldest daughter, not too bad, just like a 24-hour thing. And she was able to really power through and was fine. My son got really sick on our way back home, had you know really like the true Bali belly was sick for a few days, the shivers, the fears. And I'm like, oh, the fears, the, those were mine, <laughs> the fever. And we're going through Hong Kong and I was so nervous. We we're going to wind up being quarantined. He throws up in the immigration line to Hong Kong, which was mortifying for all of us for different reasons. So my youngest is taking her PRN anxiety medication. She takes like an antihistamine when she's like overwhelmed, kind of like an Atarax. So she's freaking out. My older daughter has social anxiety. And so she's like walking away. I have a metaphobia and social anxiety and everybody in the line because they're Chinese. Um, and I think there's some more awareness of, of germs in their culture. You know, they're all putting their masks on and, and I felt so embarrassed and I'm like, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And I was pretty sure that we were not going to be allowed into Hong Kong, but we were thankfully, <laughs> I mean, he wasn't contagious. You know, he had Bali belly. So my poor guy, I mean, it was like a 30 hour trip back home because we had a nine hour delay in LA and he was throwing up the whole time and cuddled in the airport. But I think initially I was over the top. I mean, legitimately so because they actually did get sick. I don't know if we could have prevented that. And he was like, I don't know what I did wrong. Um, I was like, I don't think you could have prevented it. I think there's just some things you can't prevent. But luckily it was like the very end of the trip and we had an amazing trip. So I hope this is a good example actually of this topic because for those of you that know me and listen to my podcast, you know that my husband passed away suddenly two years ago and he was 42 and we were going to travel when we retired. And I now realize that life is way too short. And if I have the means, I'm going to travel with my kids. And it's been a really bonding experience for us. We are traveling nonstop when they're off of school, which is actually getting a little bit trickier now that my daughter's in college. But and so it's helping them learn about culture and experience new foods and new people and new things and, and being resilient. And even with this, this experience of him being sick, however, and we are going on another trip uh, because when I say I travel, I mean, anytime I kids have a break, we're going somewhere outside of the United States while we can afford it. I'm very concerned that this medical issue, this health issue that he had with, you know, Bali belly or whatever you want to call it is going to turn into an OCD thing. And so that's the other struggle with health issues is your kid can have a true health issue. And then what is OCD going to take from that? And OCD is a little bit more sticky than anxiety. Anxiety can create some anticipatory anxiety, but I'm very concerned that he's going to equate flying with throwing up now and traveling, mainly flying because he was doing fine. And as soon as we were flying, he he would throw up again. And, and a lot of it was psychological with him at that point where He'd be fine and just laying there. And then as soon as we're landing and I had given him motion sickness pills, I, that really wasn't it. He would say, I get just revved up. I get anxious that I think it's going to make me sick. And then he gets sick. And so I kept trying to proactively do some damage control. And I said, let's not let squishy is his OCD. Let's not let squishy turn this into an OCD thing. Like, cause he'd say, I think I'm, I think I'm just motion sick, or I think I'm just air sick. And I'm like, you're not, you have like food poisoning or whatever you want to call it. This is not motion sickness because he didn't want to like, he didn't want to accept that he had Bali belly because he knows it can take five to seven days to, to get through your system. It's much easier to think this is just the airplane. As soon as I get off, I'm going to feel better. So I get it. But I kept saying, 
nope, nope, this that's not what it is. And even afterwards, he would say, I think it was just the flight. I'm like, it was not the flight because we're about to go on another very long flight. We're going to Greece and Turkey within two weeks. By the time you're listening to this, we'll already have been back because I batched these in large batches now. But anxiety and OCD can turn anything, any life situation, any trauma in life, and any health issue into an ongoing compulsion or avoidance. And so uh, stay tuned. I'll give you an update on how that goes. Wish me luck. So when we get back from the break, I want to talk about how we help our kids with these things. A little preview because I talk, you know, like being preemptive like I was with my son can be very helpful. So when you know it's it's a potential, it's kind of nice to like try to beat it at its own game and call it out before it even happens. But you have to know your kid and whether that's going to be received or not. But after we get back from the break, I want to talk about how to separate these out and how to reduce that stress that's causing some of those extra added struggles that our kids are having. We'll be right back. It's time we put help directly in our kids' hands. Introducing Crushing OCD Course for Kids and Teens. It was way more helpful than all the other therapy we've ever done because we didn't really know what to do. So we weren't really doing it before. So the course helped to figure out what the exposures are and how to do them. We're not in therapy and find it really hard um, to find an ERP trained therapist here. Um, So we're currently with like the public health service, but again, they don't seem to be trained in ERP. It's filled that gap that we don't have that was desperately needed. This was really well timed for us to use between therapists and to help us like start get off to a good start with this new practice. It was easy to use. Um, I was able to do it from my phone or also on the computer. There's different ages, you know, so there were younger kids, there were teenagers. And um, so that was really nice too, to have a variety of ages where it wasn't just geared towards younger kids or older kids. It was a nice variety. It's helpful for our kids to hear it from this like third party as opposed to just us saying it. I really like the offense and defense method. I love working on poking at OCD while it's sleeping. It makes it a little bit easier to do and it's kind of fun. (laughs) I'm planning on using it to work on my uh, fear of like holding or touching batteries and stuff like that. So it was really helpful and I think a lot of other kids would like it. I thought that I was like the only one who had worrying about the weather and stuff. And then there was somebody else on there who worried about the same thing, which was really helpful. Seems less scary to work on stuff now that I've watched this class and I'm more interested to work on it. I like trying to do more exposures still and going to, before I wasn't, I just didn't want to do them. I've worked on some of my bigger compulsions and been successful. I realized it was helpful to do like the exposures before it was like really, really hard. It's still hard, but it's helpful to know that I need to do them. Before there would be a lot of battles about it. So it is definitely less loggerheads. Really, really good course and super helpful. I definitely would recommend this. It's really easy to follow. It's in nice bite-sized videos. I really like the worksheets that go along with it. And I think it's really helpful. To learn more about this course and register your child or teen, go to atparentingsurvivalschool.com. All right. Well, welcome back. So what do we do with this, right? So it's a mixed ball. It can be tricky. A lot of times our kids might be having a medical issue and we may not realize it. And so I think the first step is 
looking at what is rational precautions versus irrational precautions. And we can kind of go through them. So if your child has asthma, what is rational? What does the pulmonologist or whoever you're working with recommend activity-wise, right? And sometimes you might have to double check with your own anxiety. It might mean for you, my child should never run or my child should never do this or that or go here. And maybe the doctor or the specialist is not that cautious and says, no, they can do that in, in moderation. So getting the, the objective precautions that is recommended by the doctor is really helpful and important. So with asthma, that might be the activity level. For celiac, it might be what can they eat? What can they not eat? For pandas and pans, I hadn't, didn't really explore that deeply in the first half of the podcast. Pandas and pans is different in the sense that we have to take care of the medical issues. So when you have pandas and pans, it could be due to a strep infection. It could be due to an autoimmune infection, autoimmune issue. It could be due to an exposure like mold or something toxic. It could be due to to virus, like really anything that can create inflammation in the brain. And so the symptom can be anxiety or OCD. It can also be the trigger. You might be genetically predisposed to anxiety or OCD and pandas. Pans can be the trigger. I feel like that's what happened to my son. Autoimmune issues are rampant in my family. Anxiety and OCD are rampant in my family. And I think that that's not a coincidence. I think there's a correlation between inflammation and anxiety and OCD, especially OCD. And so one of the things that we have to do with pandas and pants is take care of the medical issue. The mental health issue has to be dealt with in the same way that it is always dealt with, but the medical issue is also very important. And so we have to explore that and get those medical interventions in place and they do show up in a different way. And so you have flares where maybe there's periods of time where everything is great. And then you have a flare again. With my son, there is not a period of greatness. Restrictive eating is is an ongoing struggle. It's like part of his life. It's part of, we don't have periods where that's, we have periods where it's better, but we don't have periods where it's gone at this point. But you do want to address that. And going to Pandas Network, pandasnetwork.org is a great place to start because they do have a directory of doctors who are well-versed in pandas and pans, hopefully. (laughs) And they have a lot of resources there too. So I would start with that. When we're talking about allergies, what is reasonable to avoid versus irrational? So if my child has a peanut allergy and they just can't eat peanuts, but they can be in a room with peanuts, they just maybe need to be at the peanut table. You know, like a lot of schools, at least in America, have like an allergy table and So you're not going to be sitting next to kids who are eating peanuts. And so going over those parameters of what that looks like is really helpful. Like with my daughter, I taught her from a young age to look at ingredients. She knows exactly what ingredients to look for in any packaging that would be a concern for her. And so when you're talking about celiac, it's not just wheat. That's the first thing we look for, but also there's barley. And so there's caramel, caramel. Caramel, <laughs> however you want to pronounce it. Caramel often has a gluten component to it. So if there's caramel in it, soy sauce has gluten in it, unless it's gluten-free soy sauce. Most syrups have gluten in it, unless it is maple, like pure maple syrup, or there's one particular brand that is gluten-free. And so she's aware of these ingredients and she knows what to look for in them. And so that gives her some agency to say, I know I can eat this because I just looked at the ingredients. And so teaching our kids how to look at ingredients, how to look at labels in a non-compulsive way, that's rational. Those are rational precautions. Not eating something just in case, not being near people who are eating might be over the top. And I have seen people with 
peanut, we'll just use peanut allergies, but I've seen people with food allergies in general develop OCD around their food allergies. And the parents will say, but she really does have an allergy and she really can die if she eats this. Yes, it's true. But she, does she need to av- avoid an entire restaurant or does she need to avoid, avoid going into the lunchroom or does she need to avoid, you'll see normally that it goes above and beyond what is rational. And so we want to separate those out. And sometimes it can be helpful to get the doctor to say, these are the precautions you need to take. And these are the precautions you don't need to take and help them separate it out. So what is rational precautions versus what's irrational? And then stress reduction is really important. And that will look different for each person. Um, One of my favorite resources on coping skills is copingskillsforkids.com. Janine Halloran has been on my show quite a few times, actually. She wrote the very popular book, Coping Skills for Kids. There is a, a book called Coping Skills for Teens, which is amazing, very helpful. She has a website, copingskillsforkids.com. And she actually has a membership, um, which is really helpful, especially if you're a therapist or a teacher and you want ongoing resources for coping skills. And you can check that out probably at her website as well, where she has a membership that you can join and you have interactions with her, kind of similar to my membership. And so Finding out what works for your kids as far as stress reduction is really helpful. There are common ones. So square breathing or star breathing can be helpful. Um, So looking at different approaches for breathing, which really are just breathing, but how you breathe, you know, counting in for four, holding for four, breathing out for four or holding for three. You know, there's all sorts of different concoctions of breathing that help for different reasons. Breathing through your nose, out through your mouth, breathing through your nose breathing out through your nose, lots of different techniques that you can research that whatever works for your child. My kids really like smell the pizza, like smell the pizza so that they're bringing air into their nose and blow out the birthday candles, blowing it out through their mouth. That was very, very helpful for my daughter, especially with her stomach issues. She really liked that approach. And so finding what works for your kids. Aromatherapy can be very calming. Again, as I list these, it's not what is quote unquote good for stress. It's what works for your child. Because if it works for your child, then it's effective. If they don't like the idea, it doesn't resonate with them, then it won't work because half of it is a placebo effect. You know, like I gave my son mints when he was having a really rough time on the airplane and we have used mints as a placebo effect. You have to be careful. It doesn't become a compulsion, but yeah, mints do calm the stomach. But a big part of it is I say, this is going to help your stomach. Mint will calm your stomach. Mint is very calming. And then I give him a mint. And then within like two seconds, he's very suggestive. He'll say, oh, I feel so much better. And yeah, I mean, mints do help the stomach, but it's the suggestion of it as well. I'm doing something actively that's going to help me. And when we have actions that are supposed to help, we feel better because the placebo effect is actually a real effect. I mean, they've done research to show that it's significant. It's not It's not a small percentage. It actually, the idea of suggestion is actually a very powerful treatment approach. And so if your child's not buying into what you're offering, it's not going to have that extra oomph with the, with the placebo effect. So ask them, you know, talk about these different techniques and find what works for them. Aromatherapy, my daughter went with her stomach. I bought roll-on aromatherapy that I would like roll on to her wrist and got a couple of different smells that were supposed to be really helpful for your stomach. And she found one that she liked and I would put it in her bag, in her school bag. And she felt like she had something 
that she could take out and do when she was feeling overwhelmed, when her stomach started to hurt. And so just the action of having something that was supposed to help you was very powerful for her. I would also roll it on her stomach. And partly, I think, again, the suggestive value of it, and partly, I think it just helped. It kind of soothed her and it made her feel better. So aromatherapy can be really helpful. I find aromatherapy helpful for me, like when it brings me into different moods. So I use smells a lot, actually, a little in inside view in Natasha's world. Well, I always carry around hand sanitizer that is smelly, like good smells, because it does act as kind of an aromatherapy for me. I like to smell my hands when I'm like overwhelmed. It's kind of a grounding thing. I also started to get smelly soaps for my whole house, which I know is so weird. But when my husband died, like there were really these little, and I've talked about this before, there's like little things that I would do that would help ground me. And Bath and Body Works was having a sale and their soaps were like cheaper than Walmart. And so it was like so worth just getting like a huge box of them because they were like two or $3. It was just a really good sale. And I still haven't gotten through all of them. And I put them like one in the kitchen, one in my room, one in the bathroom. And my kids love them. And my youngest daughter, who's really like her nose is like her superpower. She's, they all have some sensory superpowers. She picks out the smells. And so if they're like her nose approved, then they're good. But that's also a grounding thing and very calming. And so when she wasn't feeling well on our trip or when any of them wasn't feeling well, I'd say smell your hands because we had plenty of hand sanitizer, which apparently did not help, but help me. I didn't get sick. And my little one didn't get sick, which was actually really good because she's got the stomach issues. So figure out what helps. The other thing I like is some sort of visualization. And again, your child has to be on board with this, but creating a world in their head that they can go to at any time can be very calming. It can be a meditative type of thing. And so for myself, I have two worlds that I have created probably 20 years ago. And when I'm having a hard time sleeping or when I have to get blood work done because I don't like the whole idea of it and I've passed out before and all of us have problems with blood work, all, my, all, my, all of us, my whole family, I go to my world and my world is very real because I go there often. And so helping your child create a visualization of a world can be very helpful. The key is that it hits all their senses. So when you're helping them create a world, you sit there and you say, what does it sound like? What does it smell like? What is it? T- what are you touching right now? What does it taste like? But you don't want a storyline. And so it's kind of like you want to be able to roam around this world. Like in my world, there are different things that I can go to. There's a waterfall with like warm water that I can sit under and it can be very healing. There's the ocean. There are these beautiful like neon tropical fish that are like not of this earth looking like they're so beautiful and I can go into the dark ocean and they can light up. There's like entertainment to keep my mind busy, but no storyline. And the reason for that is we don't want them to get hooked into a storyline. We're not trying to activate the brain. We're trying to relax them. And so now if they are awake and they're not using it to sleep, then maybe they do a storyline. Maybe they create a story in there. But when we're using it to calm down and like go to bed, we don't want a storyline in there. But the more you actually tap into your senses, what does it sound like? What does it smell like? You go to your world and you ask yourself, what am I tasting? What am I touching? What am I feeling? What am I hearing? That grounds you in there. And if you do this as part of your daily routine or you teach your child to do this as part of their daily routine, they go to bed, they think of their world, they fall asleep, then it's very easy to summons it up when you're feeling stressed. My world is so tangible and real to me that when I'm going to get blood work, it doesn't take me 
long, I would normally tell the lady, I'm not going to talk to you because I don't like dealing with this. And then I can go to my world without her talking to me or saying, I can't find your vein. Oh, that's the worst. It's like, I don't need to hear about this. You just do your job quietly. But I can go to my world because it's so accessible to me. So that is something if your child's creative, um, they can draw their world. It is a, it's a, a valuable tool that they can use lifelong if they're into it. Another stress reduction can be having their favorite playlist. And so, especially if you have tweens or teens, getting them to have like their favorite relaxing playlist can be really helpful. So they have it on their phone and they can just pop their AirPods in or whatever they listen to and and listen to it. Sometimes people can create like save videos, their favorite videos. So if they're on YouTube or Instagram or TikTok or whatever, they can save funny videos and they can watch those when they're feeling overwhelmed or stressed. And so that can be really helpful too. Another thing is teaching them some of the early warning signs of, of their health condition. And so if you have celiac or an allergy and you're starting to feel, you know, sick, what do you do with that? For my daughter, there's nothing she can do if her stomach starts to hurt. She has, I am a hundred percent sure she has IBS as well because she doesn't, she's very good with her gluten-free diet and she still has stomach problems all the time. And she's taking lactate before she has dairy and she's still having stomach problems. So I feel like we got other things going on with her, but there's nothing she can do. Like once her stomach starts to hurt, she has to ride it out. Luckily, it's normally within like 20 to 35 minutes, she starts to feel better, but she has to buy time. And so she will ask for my phone when we are out, when she's not feeling well, and she will play like Crossy Roads or something on my phone. I keep a couple of games on my phone that are mindless that help her keep her mind busy. And so that might be a tool that you use, or you might have just a photo folder of all these funny photos or interesting photos that can distract them when they're not feeling well. That can help too. So ask your child what works for them, what's helpful. Sometimes cold compresses can help. I know when I'm not feeling well, something cold can feel good. So find what that is for your child. And the other thing is understanding what those symptoms are and having a plan. So if your child has an allergy, having a concrete plan of this is what happens if you had peanuts. We had this EpiPen and, you know, it might be a little scary for you, but you're going to be okay. You know, and so having a very concrete discussion with them about the signs and symptoms of their medical condition and what interventions they have available to them or what the crisis plan is for them if they're having an emergency. With IBS, I think a lot of times it's important to know what wiggle room they have. So when I was working with kids who had IBS in my practice, we would talk about when you're at school, you can go to the nurse and you can go lay down. Or if you're you know, on vacation, you can go back to the hotel room and you can do this. And these are the things that you can eat you know, that will help your stomach. And these are the things that you can do when your stomach is hurting. And being realistic about it, because instead of saying like, it's not going to happen, or you're going to go on vacation and just enjoy it, stop worrying about it. Well, that's not realistic, especially when you have IBS. You want plans. Maybe you have a medication that will help calm your, you know, your symptoms down. Or maybe you want to know that you have some wiggle room that you can go back to the hotel and you can stay there while everybody else goes and does something else that someone will stay with you or you're old enough to stay by yourself. Like you want to know if you have a plan, that can be really, really helpful. So I also want to talk about POTS because POTS is a really important thing to differentiate because a lot of times the symptoms of POTS looks just like the symptoms of panic disorder. And so my oldest daughter, my 19-year-old, had panic disorder. She had her first panic attack when she was going to England with her dad. Her dad is British, and he was taking her to England 
So her dad is not my husband that passed away. So I got married really young and had her, and then we divorced, and then I got married to Jimmy, who is the father of my two kids, my two other kids, and he's the one that passed away. Just some clarity in my life. But she was going to go to England with him, which made her really nervous, and that was her first panic attack at the airport. And she was already having, maybe she was already having some panic signs because I was trying to get her on medication and she was very resistant. And then she went to England and was having like full-blown panic attacks nonstop because she was away from me. She was with her dad and she didn't feel very you know comfortable. And anyway, she wound up coming home and getting on medication, but later on was also diagnosed with POTS, which can feel like a panic attack. And so it is important to help kids understand what pot symptoms can be. And so the symptoms of POTS are like dizziness or lightheadedness, especially when you're standing up or when you're like standing up for a prolonged period of time, fainting or near fainting, having brain fog, feeling like kind of out of it, heart palpitations, like racing heart, feeling exhausted and feeling anxious and nervous, which does that sound like a panic attack? It completely does. And so if they're diagnosed with POTS or you're not sure, maybe there's a diagnostic differentiation that needs to happen. A cardiologist can diagnose POTS. And one of the primary ways they diagnose, I believe, at least they did with her, was you know, testing her heart rate from, from sitting to standing and watching that jump and then standing to sitting. That was one of them, you know, an echocardiogram and some other stuff. But it was very confusing because she was diagnosed with POTS and then like a year or two, and she was put on some medication, salt and another medication. And then she was already on medication for her anxiety. And then we went to a different cardiologist because that one, I don't know, just like disappeared. It was really weird. And the next cardiologist was like, I don't even think she has POTS, which was very confusing. That happens a lot with my kids where like they're given a diagnosis and then another doctor is like, no, they don't have it. Like what? That happened with my son with Hashimoto's. I mean, I didn't think you can outgrow Hashimoto's, but then he went to a different doctor. It's this one hospital. And they're like, no, he's fine now. He doesn't need to be monitored. I'm like, okay, well, the other hospital was like monitoring him for life. So super confusing in the medical world, in my opinion. But when she understood that when you stand up and you feel lightheaded and when your heart is racing for no reason, this is the reason. You're not dying You're not because she does have health anxiety. Or when you're feeling nervous for no reason, it could be POTS related. And part of panic disorder in general is the panic about the panic. It's about it's the panic about feeling the panicky feeling in your body and feeling like you're having a, a a life emergency and versus just a false alarm in your body. And POTS can feel very similar. And so part of helping our kids with anxiety and POTS is getting them to understand what those symptoms are. So a bit confusing. A lot of people with POTS have panic disorder. It's like the chicken or the egg, in my opinion, right? Is it panic because you're panicking about the medical issue that you have? Because it's very hard. Most people have POTS and don't even know they have it. So interesting, some things to think about. I hope that you found this episode helpful. It's just like food for thought, right? It's just thinking about these things and looking at them in different ways. And I hope that you found that helpful. I hope that you find the podcast helpful in general. And if you do, you know what I'm going to say, if you listen to me, don't forget to review it, hit a star. It does really help the show. If you have a few extra seconds, if you can leave a review, you know, I greatly appreciate that. And to show my appreciation, I always like to end my episodes reading one of them. If I have one, I haven't had one for a while. So I want to thank Lisa for writing one who wrote, thank you, Natasha. You've been such a wonderful help to our family. My son is very much enjoying and benefiting from your teen crushing OCD class. I'm so excited to hear that. 
And I'm learning so much about my own anxiety and OCD. You're such a personable, kind, thoughtful, and inclusive presence. Thank you for all that you do to help others. I appreciate that, Lisa. Thank you for writing that review. And I'm glad he likes the class. I am really, I love this class. Like, you know, I love all my classes, but this class I love the most because I have 12 other kids that help teach it. And I just know this, I'm not saying this because it's my class, although it's going to sound like I am. I know that it will help kids. If they just take the class, I know it will help them. So I feel like really feel confident about how good it is. And so it's nice to put it out there. Uh, If you're interested in that class, I might as well just give a little, you know, shout out to the class. You can go to atparentingsurvivalschool.com. Check out all my classes. It's under the OCD classes. It's crushing OCD for kids and teens. But I do love to hear the feedback because I'm biased for sure. But I do feel like these 12 kids made this class so much better. So thank you for taking the time to write that review, Lisa. And maybe if you write a review, I'll be reading yours next time. Don't forget to take advantage of my free series that's coming out in a few weeks, Self-Care for Parents Raising Kids with Anxiety or OCD. You can sign up at atparentingsurvivalseries.com and I'll be back next week. But don't forget to find the sparkle in everything you do in between. Take care. Thank you for listening to the AT Parenting Survival Podcast. To get additional support raising a child with anxiety or OCD, visit Natasha's online school of on-demand classes at atparentingsurvivalschool.com. 